0: Welcome to Strong Not Starving. My name's Marcus Kane, and if you want to beat binge eating and create a rewarding dynamic with food, exercise, and self-image, you're in the right place. The information in this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice, and we will be talking about subjects relating to, pertaining to eating disorders and eating disorder habits, so this is a trigger warning. Today, my friend and fellow coach, Eric Pothen, is joining me to talk about some Dense topics. We originally caught up to talk about some problematic things that were happening in the nutrition space, with like what I eat in a day videos and, and this kind of stuff that's flying around, but the conversation just evolved into something much, much bigger. So just to let you know what you're in for today, if you keep listening, we talk about identifying the eating disorder voice in your own mind. We talk about the difference between distraction and dissociating when it comes to eating disorder recovery. We talk about how the goalposts always shift when we get too focused on weight loss. Something else we tackle here is the subject of whether or not straight-sized people can give good advice when it comes to body positivity and body acceptance. We talk about the overvaluation of appearance and body shape in the LGBTQ community. And even the subject of performance enhancing drugs and your diet comes up in this conversation. So good Lord. Yeah, it's a big one. But just briefly before we jump into it, this week, this last week of November 2023 is the last week that my new mini course, Identify Your Binge Triggers and Take Preemptive Action is available. If you haven't already picked it up, it's available via the link in the episode description for less than the price of a round of drinks for you and a few friends. So go check it out. A lot of love and time has gone into creating what I hope is a really valuable resource for you. And doors will be closing at the end of November. So with that said, and without further delay, here's my chat with Eric. Eric, how you doing, man? How are you? I'm good. I would love you to just introduce yourself a little bit to the, the people listening. you You're a coach working in the eating disorder recovery space. You've put out a lot of great stuff in in that kind of field. I'd love to know a little bit about what really inspired you to start work there and anything that you'd like to share about your personal journey.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Eric Pothen. Um, I recently got certified back in June to be an eating disorder recovery coach Um, And so one thing that's important to note with that is that I'm not a licensed psychotherapist. So a lot of the work that I do with clients is in the here and now and how we can work in the present moment with what is surfacing um, to really help them feel grounded in their recovery and to really help them establish a better relationship with food and their body. Um, So the certification and a lot of the work that I do is incredibly holistic in nature. Um, So we really focus on um, identifying values, really working on developing coping strategies. Um, and ultimately, this journey and in, in being in recovery is the returning to your true self. I feel like so often when those who struggle with food and s- more specifically eating disorders are in the thick of it, they lose themselves and they develop this new identity. And the eating disorder tries to create this new identity for the body that it's living in and how it can completely shift and take you away from your core beliefs and values and and really shift and mold them into something that really isn't you and that they don't align with those former beliefs and values. And so when individuals enter into that space of recovery, it's a huge learning opportunity for them to really be able to begin to zoom out to be able to distinguish between themselves, their true selves versus their old selves or the identity that the eating disorder tried to give them. And I think that's the key to entering into the space of recovery is being able to really begin to distinguish between when those thoughts do resurface of, oh, that's an eating disorder thought. That's, you know, for me, I like to personify my eating disorder voice. So, Carol, Carol is the name of my eating disorder voice. So when I notice a thought come to the surface, I tell Carol to shut up, right? Because <laughs> I know that that's not my voice. And that's not something that, you know, I, Eric, identify that thought with. Mm. Um, And so a lot of the work that we do is being able to identify that voice and really get back to your true self, connect with yourself um, and just be really grounded in who you are and try to. Eliminates this notion that I feel like society has embedded within us that you know the way our body looks determines our worth in and of itself.
0: That concept of the the eating disorder voice, like it's something that obviously you and I have talked about this a little bit, and I I resonate with very much. Recognizing that voice almost like a separate person and going like, oh my god, like how would this sound if this was actually being spoken. Or if these things were being spoken by a whole other person, like would I be listening really closely and going, "Oh yeah, maybe that's correct," or would I be going, "Look, what the hell," you know? So I love that that approach and that kind of self awareness around separating out the voice and the way that you're describing this, it it really sounds like that was a profound experience for you personally, separating. The voice of the eating disorder from what you could call your true self. Can you tell us a little bit about the discrepancies that you notice between you, who you are, and the eating disorder voice?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit of background about me is I lived with an eating disorder for four years. Um, and it really all started right after I graduated from college. And Uh, I'm a big person for routine and so um, I had gotten into this great routine of going to the gym in the morning before work um, so then I didn't have to do it at the end of the day and so got into a really great routine uh, naturally just started to lose a little bit of weight um, and then that's when the uh, compliments from other people started to come in where oh you look great um, And it was really those compliments from other people that continued to fuel that need to lose weight more and more just to receive that external validation from other individuals. Um, and so it just got to the point where I was excessively exercising, obsessed with exercise, um, and really just restricting my food intake and becoming so uh, hyper fixated on the food that I was putting into my body. I created so many ridiculous food rules looking back, um, now being in this strong place of recovery. Um, but yeah, so speaking to your point here about, you know, when I notice it, my voice versus that eating disorder voice is um, typically when I notice that I find myself being triggered um, still around particular foods. And I think. Um, We'll touch on this eventually in our conversation, but I feel like recovery is an active space we will always be in um, after going through struggling with an eating disorder. I don't think individuals are ever fully recovered um, from an eating disorder. I think we can recover from particular behaviors, but I think the thoughts that uh, are really prominent when we do struggle with food and body image and eating disorder They still lie within, but I think they remain dormant at times. So typically when I find myself feeling a little bit more elevated and heightened with emotions, that's when the red light kind of goes off in my mind to pause for a second and to really start to begin to think whose voice is more active here. And then really learning to challenge that, right? I think a lot of the work that we do in recovery is learning how to sit with those intense emotions and still be able to move forward and challenge those thoughts that are surfacing. Um, And so I think, you know, when those, when Carol surfaces, it's a lot of just being able to pause and once again, separate that. This is her trying to convince me and trying to become part of myself again and become my identity um, and really just standing strong in my roots of being in recovery and reminding myself that this is a temptation and I know that I need to be able to sit with it and challenge it. Because if I don't, that's when she takes over my mind.
0: Mm with that idea or that strategy of being able to be with certain thoughts sit with certain thoughts to be able to pause i know a lot of people who attempt to do that end up faced with what we could describe as the you know the visceral sense of the emotion that comes with that particular point in time that particular state that particular thought process and that kind of the visceral sense becomes so overwhelming that it it almost gets to a point where we feel like I'm willing to do whatever's necessary to make this feeling go away at this point in time. And I've noticed that there's that really big hurdle for a lot of people because the the idea of okay, it's just a thought this I can recognize as something that is uh essentially an eating disorder thought or disordered eating thought. It's not helping me. It's not part of who I want to be. And yet right now I'm experiencing such an intense visceral reaction that it's quite dysregulating and very hard to see clearly and take clear action that um, essentially involves anything other than just trying to make that feeling go away in any way possible. What was your experience with dealing with the felt sense of emotion surrounding some of these thoughts and some of these experiences?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, in the early stages of my recovery, it was quite easy for me to just do what the eating disorder voice was telling me to do. Um, But I think what is most helpful for me and what I've learned in my own recovery is really developing and practicing those distress tolerance skills, right? Where we find ourselves in this elevated state, um, but we need to really look into our toolbox of other tools that we may have learned with regards to, um, it can even be mental health. And typically for me, I find myself being incredibly anxious um, when I find myself having these heightened emotions. So I not only turned to the, my mental health toolbox, um, you know, that I've really learned to build and grow up, but then I also turned to my toolbox that, uh, have a little bit more specific skills that I've learned within my eating disorder recovery. So, um, one thing that was really helpful for me at the beginning was distractions, right? So when I noticed myself becoming really elevated and heightened in emotions, and I couldn't, I didn't have the skills to necessarily differentiate is I would use distraction. So I would Mm. either call up a friend, I would play a game of solitaire, um, just something to get my mind off of those heightened emotions. Um, And typically, when I used this, you know, method of distraction, I would still take bites of food. And for me, it was having that external stimuli that wasn't these thoughts that were going all around, Mm. that really helped kind of lower that intensity of them. um, And to really help me move forward with whatever meal that I was currently eating at the time.
0: Cool. I know that my own journey as far as these things was far from perfect. And from the outside looking in, I'm sure a lot of people Uh, look at processes like this and maybe get a bit self-critical with the steps they feel that they are or aren't able to take. And when you say distraction, what do you feel is the difference between distraction and dissociating? And I, I ask that because I definitely use distraction on my own path, though Admittedly, I definitely slipped into dissociation sometimes as well and kind of created a new thing for me to to lean on and a new thing for me to to use as a a crutch rather than really breaking away from these things. And exactly what that was like, there was a period in, in my own journey where I was leaning pretty heavily on video games as my distraction. But then that that did very quickly become a form of quite intense dissociation where I would experience almost a need to just go and turn on the, the video game console and just experience that feeling of my entire awareness kind of like just being switched off. Um, so that was obviously a step away from, you know, bulimia. But at the same time, that then became something that I had to revisit and regulate and figure out a way to to make more constructive down the road. So what do you feel about that difference between a healthy distraction versus maybe uh, dissociative type habits?
1: Yeah, that's a really great point that you bring up. And for me, I think one of my favorite things about being in this space and talking with another individual who has lived experience with an eating disorder is that I learn about other people's experiences, right? And that my own experience of living with this and in my road to recovery is not the exact same as your road to recovery here I think one thing that I really try to mention with clients is that when you are using this tool of distraction, I think it's helpful to have a healthy rotation of what you are using as your distraction. Mm. Because if you solely focus on just one element of, oh, I'm going to play solitaire, you are going to have a stronger dependency on that because you have now associated, you know, the de-elevation of those heightened emotions with the physical act of playing solitaire so i think for me it's really what other things can you use as distraction can it be calling a friend can it be watching a tv show there are so many different things that we can engage with can it be doing a crossword puzzle can it be coloring a word search anything like that it's really figuring out what works best for you as an individual um and then like I said, it's all about that rotation. And I think what's interesting for me is that my experience with dissociation is different with your experience with dissociation. For me, in my own recovery, and when I was struggling with my eating disorder, I tended to dissociate when I continued to ruminate on those eating disorder thoughts. So I wasn't even able to get to, you know, what can I do to or to really bring myself down on an emotional level because that was my way to dissociate, was to continue to ruminate and ruminate on what my eating disorder voice was telling me. So I find it very interesting that you were dissociating as you were using a coping mechanism or a coping technique. And I was dissociating before I was even there.
0: That is super interesting. And I'm again, there are so many things that you're saying here that I'm like, oh, I want to talk about that. And I want to ask about this. I want to talk about that. Because that the the act of ruminating, even overthinking, sometimes the constant pursuit of the right way to do something. I was speaking to a client about this just yesterday, uh, but primarily this idea of constantly ruminating, constantly thinking, not everyone connects that with the idea that, yes, that is dissociation. That is something that's essentially distracting us from our kind of present moment experience, because it's so easy sometimes in those moments. I'm not sure about you, but I I would often kid myself when I was overthinking things and and start to go down that path of, no, well, I'm doing the right thing. I'm being thorough. I'm finding out the right way to do something. I'm thinking about things from a thousand different angles, but it's like actually uh, no, like I was going back and forwards between future and, and past and thinking about things from all these different perspectives and trying to constantly figure out the right way to do stuff when really the point of diminishing returns with thinking had come and gone long ago. And I was just involved in that hamster wheel of, of dissociative thought. So thank you for bringing that up because it's not something a lot of people talk about, That the fact that that rumination and overthinking is that form of dissociation almost as surely as binge eating.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think one thing that I want to mention here is there is this notion that there is the right way to do recovery. And almost every individual that I've talked to in this space has said it is anything but a perfect process, right? Mm -hmm. Like, It is messy as hell where one day you're doing great. You think you're on the quote unquote right track. And then the next day you feel like you've taken 10 steps backwards because you were triggered and you responded in a way that didn't serve you. And so it moved you backwards in your road to recovery. But I think there is no right way. The right way is the way that you as an individual choose to navigate it, right? I think there are... Mm good choices you can make on the road to recovery and being in recovery, but it is such a personalized and individualized journey where I think a lot of work needs to be done in this space is getting rid of that notion that there is a right way to do recovery.
0: Cause something that came up in one of our previous conversations was the, the thing about professionals. I use that word loosely in the nutrition space taking their own story, their own anecdotal process, you know, this worked for me to achieve X, Y, Z. Therefore, I'm going to create a whole series of pieces of content on this exact method that I used for myself. And because it worked for me, then I'm just going to take that stencil and put it on you and expect that you should be able to mold yourself into some kind of version of me. But yeah, there's just that, that whole thing of expecting that one person's formula is going to be the exact same thing that works for somebody else. And it can get kind of dangerous when people buy into the idea that their own way of doing something is the way that everyone should be doing something. And that is just rife in the nutrition space.
1: Yeah, I felt my blood begin to boil a little bit. Um, mm. And you're, t- I think what you're referencing here is those what I eat in a day videos. Oh, fuck um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> those are really popular right now on social media. And uh, almost every time I see one of those videos, I feel like I need to do my part and comment on a video in a respectful way and just saying, you know, your body is not going to need what this person needs. Your body needs something different. Um, And once again, it's not from a place of trying to tear the person who's posting down, but the people that are watching those videos are the ones that are looking to transform their bodies and mold it into the person that's creating those videos. And I think those people have put themselves up on a pedestal of their social status because this is what their body looks like now and this is why people so many people struggle with body image after consuming information and content on social media and this is where diet culture gets reinforced and so I also agree that it is so messed up that there are so many individuals posting this content. And it's these individuals that are actually contributing to more and more people, I truly believe, that are struggling with body image and food and can lead to these individuals developing an eating disorder. Um, and so it is, I just, like I said, I felt my blood <laughs> begin to boil a little bit because I just, I just find myself, what is, what is your purpose of posting this? Mm. I just... I have a hard time really aligning with the reasoning um and whatnot behind those videos.
0: Mm. I don't know if I'm probably showing my age a little bit here, but the equivalent of the what I eat in a day videos, that was something that I used to see in the magazines that I used to buy as a teenager in 1628. And that was like, This particular bodybuilder or this particular athlete, this particular model, this is what they eat for breakfast, this is what they eat for whatever. And the the latest incarnation of that that comes across social media, it's just this same regurgitated crap that the message kind of reading between the lines or the insinuation is that if you buy our shit and you buy into what we're talking about here and you eat just like this, then you will look like a person who's not you. And that is such crap.
1: I It just gets me to thinking, just diet culture in general, how these diets are created. You could have a five, six individual, super active, prescribed to this amount of food in a day, You could have another person who is 6'2", bigger body, and still eating that prescribed amount of food. So like this defined amount in a lot of these diets that are being outlined, it just baffles me that all body types can engage in this diet, and it's not going to give them the exact outcome that a lot of these creators of these diets are saying, because The starting point for every individual is different. What everyone's body needs is different.
0: Mm. Should we open the can of worms that is the (laughs) the subject of performance enhancing drugs in the male, especially in the male scene, more and more in the female scene. But yeah, the can of worms that is how performance enhancing drugs changes the way people's bodies uh, respond to the food that they're
1: eating i think we should go there <laughs> i'd love to hear your thoughts first well i guess i'm
0: in the position to be able to speak from experience with having been on performance enhancing drugs and it's one thing being able to talk about this like at academically and saying that okay when someone uses performance enhancing drugs They have an increased work capacity. You know, it's going to change their body's, like, you know, hormonal response, different things, whatever. And and we could talk academically for a long time, you know, increased work capacity, increased energy output, blah, 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 blah. But really, I, I noticed when I was using performance enhancing drugs, I didn't have to work that hard to stay lean. I did not. It was like, I just went about my life. I was training pretty hard, obviously, because I had the energy and the physical capacity to do so, but it wasn't like I needed a whole bunch of recovery after training sessions. It wasn't like I was doing multiple training sessions a day either or anything like that. I was probably doing two super, super hard sessions a week because I was training uh, Thai boxing at the time and then a couple of moderate weight training sessions a week, and then one kind of active recovery day. And even with that. I I just it was like I didn't have to try it it was. Being really lean using these drugs was effortless. And that is not an endorsement. I'm not saying people should go out and do it. I, I got off them because after a period of time, I started thinking, well, This is a big roll of the dice, not only because I was doing it legally through like legal loopholes and this kind of stuff. It was earth shatteringly expensive for me at the time, and I couldn't afford to to maintain it. But then it was just like, this is a really big roll of the dice here. I don't know how my body's going to respond to this in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And I guess I'd reached a point in my life where I started thinking like, I actually care about my happiness when I'm older. It had become a little bit more than just like, oh, as long as I'm shredded now, that's all that matters. Like, so I started to think ahead a little bit and I did end up getting off them. And there was this huge, huge transition where my, for the the 12 months after using performance enhancing drugs, it was like, it was like I could do nothing right when I was using them. It was like I could do no wrong. I just didn't have to think that much about stuff. I'd go and train. I'd eat a reasonable diet and ta-da. But then when I came off them, that that was, that was like one of the roughest 12 months of my life in terms of body image. So yeah, textbooks aside, I can vouch for 100% that the people that anyone is looking at that are using performance-enhancing drugs, if they're saying, oh, this is my diet, you should eat this, you should eat that, they can fuck right off because they've lost touch with how other people's bodies respond. Anyway, that's. I went on a bit of a rant there, but that, <laughs> that's, that's my thoughts on it.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And I think for me, what I'm noticing and what thoughts are surfacing in my own mind after hearing you share is that Yes, I feel like there is a rise in the use of performance-enhancing drugs um, and the effects of that on the male population. I feel like what I am noticing is this increased fad trend to just get as bulky and as lean as possible amongst men. And it has just become so widespread, not only just you know amongst men in their 20s and above, But the gym I go to, there are probably high school youth that are there now. So younger that I feel like this is having a trickling effect of what we're seeing portrayed in social media with men and just their physical stature, that this is diet culture now really coming into effect here of it influencing this younger generation. And I think that's terrifying for me. Like, I think that that should just be like, red lights, like what the hell is going on to everybody? Like, five years ago, you, you would never see a high school teenager in the gym at five in the morning, which is when I typically went. And now there are just more and more, um, not only, you know, men, but also women. There are also high school women who are now showing up earlier. So I think it's this widespread thing, but more particularly in the in with men, I'm seeing that um, just this intense desire to have that perfectly physiqued and toned body that I think is being heavily influenced by the increased use of these, um, performance enhancing drugs.
0: Mm -hmm. I would love to hear a little bit more about your personal journey with the gym, because that what you just said about high school kids using PEDs, I remember seeing that very clearly in the last commercial gym that I worked like the last two commercial gyms that I worked at. And it was, it was kind of heartbreaking like seeing these kids that were like 15, 16 years old. Just, I remember one in particular, he had shoulders like basketballs, uh, but you know, it his, his back was just covered in the most painful looking and intense acne I'd ever seen. Uh, he would, Live in the gym with this little kind of group of like cronies that would follow him around, and I, I, I couldn't help but thinking, like, I couldn't help but think, like, dude, you're just, oh my god, the the issues that he was clearly using a relatively, you know, a, a notable dose, and I kept thinking, man, like you kept totally rolling the dice on everything regarding your health, like there's just nothing like no guarantees you could be experiencing any number of side effects before you're 20 years old uh so yeah it it is it is really heartbreaking that they feel that's what they need to do tell us a little bit about a little bit more about your journey because there's something you mentioned in your instagram content that really struck me and that is this whole thing with once you get into that mindset and you start kind of critiquing your body and you start going down the road of improving, I use that word, I don't want to say improving, but changing our our bodies, it's like no matter what changes we make, no matter how lean we get, there's that perception of there is always still more weight to lose. And it's a constantly shifting goal. And it sounds like that's something that you experienced.
1: Yeah. So you basically spoke my experience to a T when I was living with my eating disorder is that I really struggled with anorexia. And so um, it's amazing that, you know, every time I see a picture pop up on my phone um, today, I try to put myself back in the body that was or the identity and the individual that was living inside of that body at the time. Um, In my first response to being in the body that I am now is, how did I ever think that I still had more weight to lose? There, There physically was no more weight that I could possibly lose. But when I was in that body, that was all that was running through my mind of like, oh, there's this extra little slab of fat there, I can lose that, right? And so I just feel like everybody in the space of, you know, nutrition and fitness, you you will never reach that pursuit of happiness and where you are trying to get. Because once you arrive, you're already looking ahead to the next thing. And that's always going. That's where you'll always be until you're able to bring yourself and stay grounded in the present moment, I think, and recognize that where you are at right now is where you need to be. And to really get out of this notion that happiness is down the road, once you achieve this goal weight, once you are able to look like this, you're still going to be unhappy when you get there. And it's not worth losing your happiness in the pursuit of that. That's what I have learned. I certainly do not have the body that I had when I was living with my eating disorder, nor do I want to be once again in that body. But being in that body, to me, I felt like was the quote unquote perfect body. And what I have learned is that, like I just mentioned, it is not worth me being unhappy and potentially slipping back into you know, my eating disorder habits in order to get myself to have a body that was similar that when I had when I was struggling with my eating disorder. And so for me, it's been that concept of it's not worth losing myself just to get to where I feel like I need to be.
0: Tell me if I'm jumping to conclusions here, but it sounds like the things that you value about yourself and the way that you perceive yourself had to undergo a a reasonably monumental shift. How accurate is that?
1: 110%. I think that was where a lot of my work in recovery was done, was trying to dissociate my sense of, or to get rid of this sense of worth being attached to the way my body looked and more so returning, like I had mentioned at the beginning to my true self, really relearning and regrounding myself in my innate qualities as a human being that i am proud of and that make me me and so that was really really hard and um trying to remove myself from that notion of once again equating my worth with the way that my body looked to sure. so, turning more within and grounding myself in that and i want to mention to you another tough thing that i feel like i've had to navigate to um not only being in recovery but where i am now is that um i identify as gay in body image within the lgbtq plus community there are a shit ton of issues and a shit ton of problems in this space where once again i feel like this is common too outside of the community but there is just so much attention giving to having that perfect body and what frustrates me the most is I feel like we are continuing to fuel this notion where body equals worth. And Mm -hmm. so this is being immersed within this community has made it that much more challenging. I think to continue to ground myself in knowing that who I am as a person is enough in that my body doesn't define who I am to anybody in any community.
0: Mm. What do you think, and I know this is a big question, so forgive me, I'm just like taking this giant question and just dumping it on you right now and saying go, but what do you feel needs to change to create a tangible shift within that community to change people's experience of being able to show up in different bodies and still feel valued?
1: It's a great question.
0: I know it's huge. Forgive me for dumping that on you.
1: No, I just, for me, I see it, it being a really hard thing to shift. What I am seeing, though, is that the younger LGBTQ plus population is a little bit more body inclusive, I would say. And so I think it is really a matter of trying to find a way to have all of these individuals come together in a space and to learn from one another. And I think, to be honest, it's going to be really hard to shift the Older generations within the LGBTQ plus community um, to become a little bit more body inclusive in that space, just because it is so deeply ingrained um, within individuals. I think in the older generations, Um, and so I just I really am hoping that this younger LGBTQ plus population will continue to celebrate their bodies and hopefully as you know, time continues to go on, that it will have a ripple effect on the younger generations. Um, I also think I have work to do in this space and continuing to be an advocate of really, you know, with messaging that all bodies should be equal worth your body does not equal your worth. And I think the more individuals we can get within the space of the LGBTQ plus community that are okay with giving that messaging, I think that can also hopefully produce somewhat of a shift. I don't think it's going to get us to where we ideally need to be. Um, but I think this is such a big sticky point within this community that really leads to... The development of eating disorders that will lead to mental health problems um so i'm not sure if i have an answer fully for that
0: i think you kind of nailed it when you were talking about creating spaces because you know you and i both know what it's like to try and change the mind of of one person or a group of people when they're convinced of a certain thing or that they don't Or when they don't want their mind to be changed. Like it's pushing shit uphill with a pointed stick. It's a waste of fucking energy. It's not going to happen. Whereas when spaces are created. For certain things. Like um, inclusivity. And diversity in terms of body image. Simply the creation of those spaces. Invites people to show up and occupy them. And. From what you said, it just kind of connected me with the idea that maybe it's not so much about fighting what exists as it is about creating a space, creating something and just saying, you're all welcome to come if you want.
1: Yeah, it really, what's surfacing for me here is like giving your attention to the good and not to the other shit, like where we focus our attention is what we can grow and develop. And so I think it's so easy, especially for me to find myself just pissed off about this whole notion of body equals worth within the LGBTQ plus community. Like that is a space that is so easy for me to enter. And I feel like I talk about that all of the time, but your point right there, it just makes me begin to realize of Okay, yes, I can allow myself to still have those thoughts. But what if I began to shift my energy and attention to trying to grow and blossom this more inclusive space?
0: I think it's something that you're you're already doing it you know like you, that that's something that i don't know if you need to try very hard to be that guy because it kind of comes naturally to you i mean you walk into a room and that kind of space appears around you i feel that's just kind of the energy that you have
1: thanks i i am curious to know uh, your own experience with this too um but i have had individuals reach out to me on social media and critique some of my messaging that I do around body image, more particularly the fact that my physique doesn't necessarily match the physique, quote unquote, or the bodies of the individuals that I am trying to reach. And Mm -hmm. so I think where I have had a difficult time with this is that notion of that critique of just, I am not just, I I don't know how to properly word it and I'm not sure if you're picking up essentially like my physique doesn't match the bodies of the audience that I'm trying to reach. Therefore I'm not as a reliable or trustworthy source of information or messaging in the space of body positivity, inclusivity and whatnot.
0: I hear you. Are we talking about the idea that someone who could be called straight sized is often stripped of a bit of credibility in the field of say, body acceptance, body positivity, because it's like, well, you're straight sized. It's easy for you to say, if I was the same size as you, I'd be able to accept myself too. Is, is that,
1: The territory we're in yes 110 percent um and so yeah i was just curious to know if this was something that you have experienced yourself um in the space of advocacy work
0: it's something that i'm very aware of at the same time my response to that is that whether people take this on board or not who knows but I very much am in touch with the fact that I am bigger. I'm a very different size to what I was when I was struggling with an eating disorder. And so I have had to gain weight to quote, recover from an eating disorder. I'm one of these people that has gained weight and is, still what some people might call straight sized, but in my own journey and in, in my own perception of myself, it took a lot of inner work and a lot of adjustment to make that leap and experience the growth that allowed me to accept myself at a new size at a different size when I'm looking different and um, especially you know if we expand it to things like hair loss for example like i started losing my hair like relatively young and there are there are thought processes that i acutely remember from my early 20s when i like the idea of being 35 and balding and not having visible abs was just like oh my god just kill me i would rather like like no that, that will not be my future. Like, I remember thinking that. But now, obviously, I don't have visible abs. I'm not on the cover of Men's Health. And I'm balding. I'm losing my hair. I've never been happier, never been more confident, never been more assured of myself and my value. So regardless of whether or not I'm straight-sized right now, there's definitely been work and a journey involved in me getting here. I know that doesn't really account for the whole thing of discrimination, because obviously people in larger bodies, like I can get on a plane or public transport of any description and know that I'm going to fit in the seats. I can buy clothes off the rack. You know, like there are certain systemic things that do discriminate against people in larger bodies that I don't have to deal with. And I can only put up my hand and say, yes, that is correct. I don't have to deal with those things. What I have had to deal with is completely reinventing the way that I view and value myself. When it comes to the systemic discrimination of people in larger bodies, that's something that we all need to work on together and tackle as a thing. But when it comes to being a straight-sized person advocating for body acceptance. I definitely have had people say to me, like, well, if I could fit into the same size jeans as you, I wouldn't be concerned either. And I understand. I I, I get it. But I think the the thing to keep in mind there, if, if someone wants to have that conversation with me, is that I've come a long fucking way from where I was. <laughs> And I look very, very different. And there are things that I've had to do. And sometimes I wonder, like, you know, those people that reach out to you and and criticize you, it, it
1: it sounds like it stings when they do that. I would say initially it did. But I think my own biggest thing that I recognize most in that space is that I do recognize that I have certain privileges with my body right in the way that my body looks and this is kind of going back to what you were just talking about um with you know some issues that other bodies may have right like weight with regards to weight and um it's really been just continuing to ground myself in the why what why am i putting this out and very much so like you have said it's been reminding myself that i have been on my own journey and I don't equate myself with my worth in the way that my body looks like uh, this is the most connected I've been to myself as an individual. This is the most confident I've been in the voice that I know that I have as an individual. And that's what matters most. And it, 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 it just, it's those jarring moments that try to derail me in this journey that I'm on to really try to create a more inclusive space for all bodies. Um, but yeah, I don't know how that had crossed my mind at some point in this conversation, but um I was just curious to know your own experience with that as well.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you bring it up because it's it's something that I feel shouldn't be swept under the rug. Obviously, you and I understand it from the perspective of, you know, we've had to go on our own journey, but at the same time, like I can 100% understand how that might look to someone who's trying to wrap their head around it or trying to get started, or maybe trying to let go of weight loss or the idea of intentionally changing their body shape with food and dieting. But something that I, I'd sometimes bring to the table in those conversations is that if we look at the the research and the relay reliable data surrounding dieting and sustainable changes in weight and all this kind of stuff, if we're going to go into that territory, The kind of dieting that results in eating disorders is still not the answer. It's like if someone wants to change their body size and shape, I work with a number of people who still do want to change their body size and shape. It's not my place to judge whether or not that's right or not. It's my place to give them the best possible advice and support I can and walk that line as best we can and make responsible decisions and present all the facts and all the information because no matter which way we spin it, the overvaluation of weight and shape doesn't lead to anything good. It's a really, it's a really tough one.
1: Yeah. I want to respond to your points that you've just made. And I think where the biggest growth can happen is I feel like when this point of conflict happens between both parties is not just taking the easy way out and not engaging in that conversation, right? Like, I feel like that's a very common thing to avoid conflict with with human beings. Um, and so I think this really stands true to us. And I know you were talking about, you know, us really kind of loving this space of talking about these things that just really aren't talked about and not being afraid to voice our own opinions on that. And it takes work to get to that place, right? And it really requires us as individuals to just be so connected to ourselves, our values, our beliefs, and whatnot to enter into that space. But I think where we can hopefully allow for a greater meeting in the middle is to sit with that discomfort, to listen with empathy, to listen with our hearts, when we enter into that space where individuals are wanting to have conversation or are noticing disconnects right between messaging and content that might be put out onto social media in their own personal beliefs and really having a mature conversation and being okay with that that point of conflict and I feel like we've gotten to a point in society where it's I'm right you're wrong there Mm. is no there's no meeting in the middle ever. And so I think the more we can have conversations like this to raise greater awareness from our perspective and to learn a new perspective, that's what's ultimately going to help us bridge that gap. I This is like one of the biggest things that I preach in almost all of my messaging and in a lot of the podcast episodes I do as well, is that If you don't have awareness, you're going to continue to do the same shit and you won't get anywhere, right? But it is so essential to be able to notice in your own body and mind when things aren't feeling right. Because if you can't connect to that and those red lights don't begin to go off, how are we ever going to be able to take steps forward? So I think awareness is the first and most essential skill and tool to really help build a solid foundation for them to be able to move forward in the recovery process
0: without that level of self-awareness it's really easy for for even the best of strategies to go us up so yeah so know. like
1: My mind goes to like differentiating, differentiating, excuse me, those, the eating disorder voice versus my own voice. If I can't even like identify that a voice is being active, like how the fuck am I going to be able to differentiate that? Right. So it's like you need to be aware that, first of all, like it seems so simple, right? To be aware that there are thoughts that are being activated in our mind, right? It seems like such a simple concept. But it really isn't like it requires such a sense of connection to self, mind and body, just like being embodied as a human being that you have to learn how to do that, especially if you have been in a space for such a long time of not being connected to your mind and body. Right. And so it's scary at those initial like when you learn to become aware, just how active these thoughts occur and how frequent these thoughts occur. Um, And that can be quite jarring, I think, for a lot of people in those early stages of recovery. And once they are starting to gain that awareness, um, and I think it's where a lot of people feel defeated to not continue with recovery just because there's this awareness of, oh my gosh, all of these thoughts are coming up regarding food and eating and body that they don't know how to work with them.
0: On that note, I'm 100% sure that there are going to be people listening to this who want to connect with you. Where can they find you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am on Instagram and that handle is at pothen E-P-O-T-H-E-N. E-P-O-T-H-E-N. Um, I also have a podcast as well, Um, and you were a guest on my podcast just recently, back a couple of months ago, Um, and you can find me on um, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you podcast, Um, and the title of my podcast is Embracing You, Um, and then lastly, um, you can reach me uh, via email, and that is eric.pothen at gmail.com.
0: Thanks, Eric. I'll make sure that there are links to you in the episode description
1: it has been such an honor to be in this space with you I always feel so grounded and just like it is so refreshing to speak with once again as I had mentioned in our episode that we did on my podcast but to be in this space with another male who is also incredibly passionate about um, advocacy work and really helping individuals and men become reconnected to themselves um in their bodies so i'm so honored and i just want to thank you for your insights i really feel like other individuals can be our greatest teachers in life um and hearing from their experiences and what they've learned can be such a gift so thank you so much for being willing to share that with me today in the audience
0: thank you brother Thank you so much for joining Eric and myself for this conversation. If you want to reach out to either of us, there will be links in the episode description. My name's Marcus Kane. This was Strong Not Starving. I'll see you next week.